Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. You've heard me say before that action is usually the most interesting element of a novel. Characters moving, the reader watching. I'm going to list some techniques for writing fight scenes, which can apply from uh, to everything from a slap, a small fight, to a battle. Uh, these techniques will help make our fight scene vivid and understandable and exciting. Do we need to follow all of them to have a good fight scene? No, of course not. But some, maybe most of them, might be solid techniques we can incorporate into our scene that will sharpen the fight and carry away the reader uh, with excitement. Here's a list of techniques. Number one, have the fight involve a main character, probably the protagonist. The reader has invested her emotions in the protagonist, so a fight will be more involving for the reader if it involves the main character. Not always, certainly. Sometimes, for uh, some reason, a secondary character may fight. But for but for the main interest of the reader, consider having the main character be in, involved in the fight. Number two, make sure something big is at stake. The fight might be the climax of the novel, where the protagonist finally defeats the villain. Or maybe it's uh, important character development, uh, character building earlier in the novel. Whatever the reason for the fight, make sure it's critical to the novel. If the fight were removed from the story, would the story still make sense? If not, probably leave the fight out. Number three, don't have too many fights. Uh, repetition leads to boredom. Uh, we've, we've talked about that. Number four, place the fight in the story to uh, gain contrast. Our fight scene will be more vivid if it is placed before or after a scene that isn't a fight. Maybe a romantic scene precedes it or a scene of discovery or uh, something that isn't a fight. The reason is because uh, elements are more vivid when placed next to an element they contrast with. Yellow is more yellow when placed next to blue. Number five, slow down the action. One of the ways to slow the action is to notice something odd that's not related to the fight. Another way is to notice things in high definition. I'd like to read a couple paragraphs from the novel The Revenant, a novel of revenge by Michael Poonke. This is a fight between a frontiersman and a grizzly bear. This is Michael Poonke. Suddenly he knew. A hollowness seized his stomach half an instant before the first rumbling sound crossed the clearing. The cubs skidded to an immediate stop not ten feet in front of Glass. Ignoring the cubs now, Glass peered toward the brush line across the clearing. He heard her sighs before he saw it, not just the crack of the thick underbrush that the sow moved aside like short grass, but the growl itself, a sound deep like thunder or a falling tree a bass that could emanate only through connection with some great mass. 
The growl crescendoed as she stepped back into the clearing, black eyes glaring at glass. Head low to the ground as she processed the foreign scent, a scent now mingling with that of her cubs. She faced him head on, her body coiled and taut like the heavy spring on a buckboard. Glass marveled at the animal's utter muscularity, the thick stumps of her forelegs folding into massive shoulders and above all the silvery hump that identified her as a grizzly. Glass struggled to control his reaction as he processed his options. His reflex, of course, screamed at him to flee. Back through the willows, into the river, perhaps he could dive low and escape downstream. But the bear was already too close for that, barely a hundred feet in front of him. His eyes searched desperately for a cottonwood to climb. Perhaps he could scramble out of reach, then shoot from above. No, the trees were behind the bear. Nor did the willows provide sufficient cover. His options dwindled to one, stand and shoot. One chance to stop the grizzly with a fifty-three caliber ball from the Anstat. The grizzly charged, roaring with the focused hate of a protective maternal rage. Reflex again nearly compelled Glass to turn and run. Yet the futility of flight was instantly apparent as the grizzly closed the ground between them with remarkable speed. Glass pulled the hammer to full cock and raised the Anstat. Staring through the pronghorn sight in stunned horror that the animal could be, at the same time, enormous and lithe. He fought another instinct to shoot immediately. Glass had seen grizzlies ab absorb half a dozen rifle balls without dying. He had one shot. Glass struggled to sight on the bouncing target of the sow's head, unable to align a shot. At ten paces, the grizzly lifted herself to a standing position. She towered three feet over Glass as he, as she pivoted for the raking swipe of her lethal claws. Point blank, he aimed at the great bear's head and pulled the trigger. I'll stop reading from the scene here. Isn't that great? Boy, is that tense. The fight goes on, and it's wonderfully, uh, skillfully laid out for the reader. See what the author is doing. Uh, this action is taking longer than the action would in real life because he is observing things closely and setting out action inch by inch. Time has slowed. It's remarkably effective to get the reader to focus on the fight, slowing time. Here's a sixth technique. Fight, fight scenes don't always have to be a knockdown, drag out brawl. Uh, few things are as interesting in fiction as a slap, and that's a fight. Uh, one person slapping another. It's insulting and painful and often prompted by rage and often creates rage. Uh, in the old days, it'd inevitably lead to a duel. Uh, so a fight scene doesn't always have to be knocked down. It can be sharp and quick. Number seven, use active, not passive sentences. You've heard me mention before, the active voice is where the subject performs the action expressed in the verb. The subject acts. The passive voice is where the subject receives the action expressed in the verb. The subject is acted upon. 
the active voice should be most commonly used in general in our fiction, but particularly in fight scenes. The active voice gives energy to a scene. Jones hit Smith on the jaw is an active sentence. It's stronger than the passive version. Smith was hit by Jones on the jaw. Kelly slapped Rob is the active voice. Rob was slapped by Kelly is the passive voice. Most often, action scenes should be in the active voice. Uh, number eight, use short sentences. Uh, the average sentence length of modern novels is 10 to 20 words. Uh, in action scenes, we should consider shortening some, not all but some, of the sentences. Short sentences lend energy to a scene. They're punchier. They add a percussive quality. They make, seem, they make things seem like they're happening faster. Not every scene in a fight needs to be short, of course, but many of them. A ninth technique, use strong verbs. Uh, listen to Patrick O'Brien in his book, Master and Commander. It's a sword and pistol fight as the ship, the Sophie's crew, boards an enemy ship. Here's Patrick O'Brien. Jack was over the shattered bulwark straight down onto the hot gun run, in and smoking, and its swabber thrust at him with a pole. He cut sideways at the swabber's head. The swabber ducked fast, and Jack leapt over his bowed shoulder onto the Casuegos, Casafuegos deck. Quote, come on, come on, he roared and rushed forward, striking furiously at the fleeing gun crew and then at the pikes and swords opposing him. That's Patrick O'Brien. Hear all the strong verbs, uh, thrust, cut, ducked, leaped, roared, rushed, striking, fleeing. The action is, is made furious and exciting by strong verbs. A tenth technique. Elmore Leonard famously said, leave out the boring parts. That's helpful, isn't it? But it is helpful. If you've written a paragraph or two and you are wondering if it's boring, the question may have answered itself. Uh, consider deleting it. Number 11. Uh, have the opponents be roughly equal in ability and strength and, and so forth. Our opponent should be formidable. Otherwise, there won't be much interest in the fight. Number 12. Uh, if it's a mob scene or a riot scene or a battle... Focus on just a few characters, maybe only one character. Uh, give them the point of view, that character the point of view, and let the reader see and hear what he is seeing and hearing. Uh, Wellington famously said, The history of a battle is not unlike the history of a ball. Some Individuals may recollect all the little events of which the great result is the battle won or lost, but no individual can recollect the order in which or the exact moment at which they occurred, which makes all the difference as to their value and importance. So focus on a few characters in the fight, maybe only one character. Number 13, keep the horizon short. 
This is related to the one just above. Your point of view character is likely taking part in the fight, and he's focusing on the opponent. His horizon is probably a 10-foot circumference, maybe 10 yards. A short horizon allows us, the writer, to focus on the main character, and it also allows us to be economical with our descriptions. Uh, We don't have to describe everything. We should describe what our main character is experiencing. If our scene uh, takes place during a riot or a battle where lots of people are involved, we can narrow our description to a small area. An example of this technique, using a short horizon, uh, is found in Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, where several important characters in the novel find themselves at battles, including the famous Battle of Austerlitz, which was a real battle fought in 1805 between the French under Napoleon and on the other side, the Russians and the Austrians. In real life, the battle was fought over 10 square miles, and in the end, almost 25,000 people had been killed or wounded. In history, it's one of Napoleon's greatest victories. A number of Tolstoy's fictional characters take part in the battle in his novel, including Nikolai Rostov and Andrei Bolkonsky. The reader switches between their points of view during the battle, but during the entire battle, neither Rostov nor Bolkonsky can see much due to smoke and mist and hills and the valley, and they can't tell what's happening uh, from the sights and sounds in front of them. Soldiers go in and out of the mist, and much is hidden, and much is uh, confusing. In other words, their horizons are short. They know only what is in front of them, and almost they know almost nothing else occurring in the battle's ten square, uh, ten square miles. Here's from the novel. Rostov stopped his horse for a moment on a hillock to see what was going on, but strain his attention as he would, he could not understand or make out anything of what was happening. There in the smoke, men of some sort were moving about. In front and behind moved lines of troops, but why, whither, and who they were, it was impossible to make out. At that moment, as the horse guards, having passed him, disappeared in the smoke, Rostov hesitated whether to gallop after them or go to where he was sent. That's uh, Leo Tolstoy. If in our scene we don't have Tolstoy's smoke and fog making the horizon short for the main character, we the writer can just make it short. In any dangerous fight, the fighter is going to concentrate fairly exclusively on who's in front of him. That's our character's horizon, the enemy right there. So our point of view is small and we can exclude things beyond the short circumference. Here's a 14th Uh, technique. Uh, Research our fight. If our fighters are using an exotic ability, say karate or knife fighting or dueling with flintlock pistols, uh, research will reveal terms of art and techniques. A lot of readers know, uh, say, karate, and their interest will really pick up if we have a martial arts fight. But their interest will be destroyed if we use the wrong term or don't seem to understand karate. Same with pistols and swords and laser weapons, anything. Uh, But we should remember, don't ladle out research in our story. 
use the research that is necessary for the scene and leave out the rest, even if we spent a good amount of time researching and learning about it. Readers want story, not essays about this or that. Jeffrey Deaver says he uses only about a quarter of his research. David Baldacci discards 90% of his research. Uh, Baldacci says, you agonize over leaving stuff out because you feel like you've earned that knowledge. But no matter how cool the information may seem to be, if you break the storyline, you lose the reader. That's David Baldacci. Uh, A 15th item, show, don't tell. Sarah was exhausted as telling. Sarah's heart raced and she inhaled in huge gulps of air is showing. Martin had injured his hand, is telling. Martin's knuckles were scraped to the bone, is showing. Number 16. Uh, Don't make the fight scene too long. Like most other elements in fiction, fights can be dull if, if carried on too long by the writer. Too much of anything is likely a mistake. Also, I think most fights in real life are short. Our fight scenes should not be too long. Those are my thoughts on writing a fight scene. Readers like action, and fights are action. And in in fact, fight scenes in novels are often remarkably interesting. The reader gets to watch people slug it out, or shoot it out, or wrestle, or kickbox, or whatever else your fight might entail. Readers pay attention to fights. And I'm not just talking about thrillers and action adventures. Uh, most novels, even literary and romance, would benefit from a fight or two. Here are the ten best nonfiction books I've ever read. Pardon me for being self-referential. In an earlier episode, I listed my favorite novels. How about my favorite nonfiction books, histories and biographies? I'm glad you asked, Jack the Cat, as no one else has. But if you're looking for exciting reading, nonfiction reading, try these. Here are my 10 uh, favorite nonfiction books alphabetically by the author. Number one is Life of Johnson by James Boswell. Samuel Johnson was the lexicographer and literary critic and wit who lived in the 1700s in England. James Boswell was his friend. The literary critic Harold Bloom says this is the best biography ever written. Another one, uh, number two, Grant by Ron Chernow. When the Civil War began, U.S. Grant was selling nails in his uncle's hardware store. Number three, A Terrible Glory, Custer and the Little Bighorn by James Donovan. Uh, Patty and I have visited the Little Bighorn. (laughs) This was a savage fight on a tiny hill. Next one is Isaac Newton by James Gleick. Newton didn't have the mathematical tools to chart the motion of the planets, so he invented, uh, not learned, but invented calculus. (laughs) The universe is a difficult concept to ponder because it's so vast. I feel that way about Newton's brain. The next one is Sea Biscuit by Laura Hillenbrand. What a wonderful story about the horse that couldn't. At least, that's what people first thought. Endurance by Alfred Lansing about 
Ernest Shackleton's journey to Antarctica in 1914, where he tried to become the first person to cross by foot and sled the Antarctic continent. What could go wrong? The Pathway Between the Seas by David McCullough, a fascinating account of the construction of the Panama Canal. Patty and I have sailed through the Panama, Panama Canal, a wonderful experience. And then also by David McCullough, the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, I've also walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, and it's one of my favorite structures on earth. Boy, does David McCullough know how to set it out. Next is Edison by Edmund Morris. Well, I've also turned on a light bulb. What makes a man like Edison, Edison? Edmund Morris sets it out. The Longest Day by Cornelius Ryan, a history of the D-Day invasion, June 6, 1944, which I read many years ago, and it just grabbed me. And the last one, Citizens, a Chronicle of the French Revolution by Simon Schama. This is an episode in history where you'll really be glad you weren't there, but reading about it is riveting. So those are my top ten. Uh, we like to be carried away when we read a novel. These biographies and histories will do the same thing. They'll, they'll take us to somewhere new to meet fascinating people doing exciting things. I want to talk about a, a good technique, which I... That's a strong technique, which I call throw a bunch of people together and see what happens. Sometimes we writers get stuck as we plot our novel, or later as we're writing it, we run out of ideas, at least ideas that will work in fiction. Has it happened to you? It sure has to me. What happens next in our story? What can we do? Are there plot prompts out there we can use? How can we come up with ideas? Are, are there ways to prime the pump of our plot? You bet. And here is a wonderful technique, maybe an unfailing technique. Add interesting characters and make them different from one another. I've already mentioned Tolstoy's War and Peace. Let me do, do so again. I've been reading it uh, now. I read it some years ago and owed it to myself to read it again. Uh, War and Peace is a classic of world literature. It, it has endured since it was written in the 1860s. But what is it? What's the plot? It's a soap opera. It's a bunch of people trying to get along and get ahead. Uh, that they are Russian and that the story takes place 220 years ago and that it's set during a war and that Tolstoy describes things powerfully and that he has some comments on how the world works or how it should work. All of these elements don't mean War and Peace isn't a soap opera. The main, the main attraction of the novel is finding out who lives and who dies, who gets rich, who marries whom, whose scheming pays off, who finds the courage to stand up to her father, who's brave and who's a coward. The, the, the story's character-driven. And the key is that Tolstoy makes his characters different from each other. Who's in the novel? Well, there's Helena Kuragina, the ravishingly beautiful, uh, rather vapid young lady whose father wants, wants to find for her a wealthy husband. There's 
Prince Nikolai Bolkonsky, who dislikes the silly world of St. Petersburg society and wants to fight the French in the army. He wants war, and he's going to get it. And Maria Bolkonsky, Nicholas's sister, rather plain, and she's dominated by her father, but whose religious faith and steadfastness serve her well. Mademoiselle Bourrienne, an orphan who was raised by the Bolkonsky family, who's a terrific flirt and something of a schemer. There's Prince Vasily Kurigan, who is rich and wants to become richer through an inheritance he plots to steal. Anatoly Kurigan, he's wealthy, young, and he's handsome, and he's an outrageous drinker and womanizer. Fedya Dolokhov, who's dangerous to be around because he lives hard and does stupid things. Anna Mikhailovna, Mikhailovna, rather. She's an inveterate conniver who spends every waking moment flattering and being at times pompous and at other, uh, other times servile and thinking only about how to advance the prospects of her dull son, Boris. And Pierre Bezukov, the illegitimate son of a wealthy count, educated out of the country in France, I think. He's awkward and rather plain, and he inherits a fortune said to be the greatest in Russia. And Helena sets her beautiful eyes on him. Uh, There's Natasha Rostov, fun and frank, and she's outspoken, and she wants to fall in love. In the 2016 BBC production of War and Peace, Natasha is played by Lily James. Yeah, she'll have trouble attracting boyfriends. And we meet Napoleon, Tsar Alexandra, General Kurigan, and many other characters from history. 200 of the 500 characters, named characters in the novel, are persons from history, rather than fictional characters. What a mix. We've got to keep reading to see what happens to these people. We know what happens to Napoleon, but what about the rest of them? This is a powerful lesson for us writers who who might be having trouble plotting our novel. Add characters and make them different. I have added a Patreon button to the podcast description below. If you want to support the podcast, please click on the button and it'll take you to a Patreon page and it'll be much appreciated. Here's the last topic for today. Keep the name the same throughout the novel. Uh, I've mentioned I'm reading Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, and I'm reminded as I do so some good advice for writers regarding our characters' names. War and Peace has more than 500 named characters. Uh, The technique is this. Most of the time in our story, we should call a character by the same name throughout the story. Otherwise, a story can get confusing for the reader. In War and Peace, sometimes it's hard to keep track of the characters, and here's one of the reasons. Characters are often given different handles, different identifiers for the same person. An example is Nikolai Nikolai Bolkonsky. He's a main character. He's sometimes called the prince. Sometimes he's called the adjutant. Sometimes Nikolai. Sometimes Bolkonsky. Sometimes Prince Andrei Nikolaevich, sometimes Monsieur le Prince, sometimes Captain Bolkonsky, sometimes he's referred to different names or titles or ranks on the same page. 
And there are lots of other princes and adjutants and captains in the story and many, many long Russian names, and it means it can get confusing for the reader. Let me suggest that we should almost all the time call our character in our story by the same handle. There might be times when that won't work, but most of the time it should. And yes, this here is Jim Thayer in Seattle, sitting at his desk, bumping his gums and giving advice to Leo Tolstoy. Have you ever have you ever wondered in your life whether you've heard everything? Well, now you have. And I'm signing off. I'm glad you were here for this episode. If you'd like to send me an email, my address is jimfairseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>